and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. Well, Rishi Sunak has got his Rwanda bill through the Commons, but at what cost to his authority? The Prime Minister lost a couple of allies along the way, most prominent amongst them being the outspoken Lee Anderson, and endured a difficult 48 hours of brinkmanship. So was it worth it? What happens next? And will this legislation actually deliver the Prime Minister's aim of stopping the boats? We'll take a look. For Prime Ministers seeking to demonstrate power and authority, the international stage is often the safest place to be. And last week, for the first time in his premiership, Rishi Sunak authorised military action. Parliament did not get a say. We'll look at the decision to join airstrikes against Houthi rebels in Yemen and the UK's involvement in a Middle East crisis that shows no signs of easing. And then we'll end by turning our attention across the Atlantic and the race to become the next US president and the campaign of a certain Donald Trump. Joining me throughout are two IFG colleagues who are keen followers of political developments across the globe, as well as here in the UK. And that's Alice Lilly and Jill Rutter. Hi, both. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Hannah. And I'm delighted that we are joined again by Peter Ricketts, Lord Ricketts, the UK's first national security advisor from 2010 to 2012, former ambassador and an ex-permanent secretary at the Foreign Office. Thank you for joining us, Peter. Hello, Hannah. So let's get started with the latest developments in Westminster, where the big story of the week was the Prime Minister's attempt to get his Rwanda bill through the Commons. Jill, he did it in the end. Was he always going to? I think at the end of the day, the problem for the right wing conservatives was nobody else was going to vote for their amendments. And we saw that when we had that rebellion. They got a few DUP uh, MPs to join, but nobody else. And the government didn't adopt those. And then basically the government presented to them with the idea of this Rwanda bill or no Rwanda bill. And unsurprisingly, they opt for at least a bit of a Rwanda bill, even if they didn't think it would work. Interesting that there were some quite high profile names on the list of the final people, the 11 who actually voted against third reading. But I think, you know, number 10, in a sense, called the narrow strategy right, that actually if we see this through, we can see off amendments and we can get the thing through on third reading. Whether the political strategy of drawing quite so much attention to Rwanda is a sensible political strategy is a completely different question. And the Prime Minister has had a week in which his authorities have been yet again undermined. The Conservative Party seems absolutely all over the place and things like that. So I think in terms of longer term dividends, will it pay off? But in the short term, it means that he's probably not facing a whole bunch of no confidence letters going in talk of leadership challenges diminishes and he sort of struggles on with a bill now passing over to Lord Ricketts and his colleagues in the House of Lords. So Peter what do you think the Lords is going to make of the bill? Well it's going to give it a lot more scrutiny than it had in the Commons to be absolutely honest probably hundreds of hours of it and not because people want to delay it although some do but because there's some very serious issues in it. I think the Lords will want to scrutinise very carefully the idea that you can have domestic legislation which basically directs the court to think that black is white by determining that Rwanda is safe, whatever, and very concerned about the implications for the UK's commitments under international law, uh, European Convention on Human Rights. So that is going to take a lot of time. There'll be a lot of amendments and there will be votes. And I would suspect that there will be uh, several amendments adopted and sent back to the Commons. So we'll get into ping pong on this, all under pressure from the Prime Minister, who already today has started talking about, you know, he wants the Lords now to deliver on the will of the people. That won't help the mood in in my house at all, I don't think. At the end of the day, I suspect the Labour Party will, in the end, accept uh, that a bill has to go through and some bill will go probably not very amended. 
but there'll be a great deal of uh, alarms and excursions before we get there. Alice, I have to say I actually laughed out loud in my kitchen listening to the immigration uh, minister, I think it was last night, who was at pains to say what thorough scrutiny the Commons had done on mm. this bill. <laughs> Two whole days in committee yeah. um, and quite a lot of uh, uh, amendments, but none of them were really ever going to be made, as, as Jill was saying. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and for the reasons that Jill outlined, and ultimately what the Prime Minister was facing in the Commons were sort of two sets of amendments from different wings of the Conservative Party. But the very fact that they were from different wings of the Conservative Party meant that there was never going to be a sufficient number of Conservative MPs who would actually rebel enough against the government, which does retain on paper still a fairly sizable majority at this point. Of course, I suppose one of the things it's also worth saying here is that the purpose of tabling amendments can be to do lots of different things. And while, yes, you might absolutely want to try and change a piece of legislation in a way that you think will make it more effective, that's not always necessarily your sole motivation. It might also be because you want to highlight divisions that exist. It might be because you want to kind of probe what you think are issues with the legislation. And that comes back to what Jill was saying about, yes, the Prime Minister has got this through, the sort of parliamentary handling at least on the surface level, has worked, but the political ramifications of that are potentially still going to be felt. And Jill, we've seen the civil service dragged into this too. Yes, we heard, first of all, rumours that there was going to be some amendment to the civil service code, which I think would just have exposed that actually the civil service code itself isn't a very robust document if ministers can amend it overnight at their convenience. But what we ended up with was a sort of one of these exchanges letters. We usually see these exchanges letters about resignations rather than about changes to guidance. But what happened was the Director General of Propriety and Ethics, Darren Tierney, wrote to Sir Matthew Rycroft, the Permanent Secretary at the Home Office, and said that if the bill passed in its current form, obviously potential to be amended, then the guidance to Home Office officials would be changed so that rather than instantly react to one of these uh, so-called pajama injunctions, these R39 decisions by the European Court, by stopping the flights, officials would urgently seek a ministerial decision and that ministerial decision would then be made on the basis of a range of advice, including legal advice. I think it's possibly the basis on which Sir Matthew Rycroft, the Permanent Secretary of the Home Office, felt that he could then accept that formulation and wrote back and said, yes, they would do that. Then the decision would fall to the minister and Home Office officials would then follow the minister's decision. Quite how watertight any of that is, if anyone decided to challenge it, we don't know. That would be a matter matter for the courts, because obviously, at some level, that could involve British government officials violating, going against some of these decisions of a European court. But it's, uh, it's a sort of similar-ish formulation to the one we have sometime on directions on spending money. But in this case, it's a sort of direction potentially to ignore uh, a verdict by, uh, as the Prime Minister might put it, a foreign court rather an than an international court, court of which the, uh, but as I said, the Prime Minister would call it a foreign court, uh, an alien court rather than an international court uh, where the UK is allegedly signed up to respect. So it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. But that means I think the Prime Minister was able to say, well, it won't be Home Office officials getting in the way of the flights, as we saw when the first flights to Rwanda took off uh, or tried to take off in 2022. 
I have to say I'm quite glad I'm no longer a civil servant because I think this puts civil servants in a very difficult position. It is also just worth pulling back the focus, I think, where government is getting itself wrapped around the axle on this point at the same time as small boat arrivals fell by a third uh, in 2023. Um, So if the prime minister's objective had been to cut significantly the arrivals of asylum seekers, he would already be achieving that objective. Stopping the boats was never a realistic outcome. And of course, the small boat arrivals reflect 5% of the asylum seekers arriving in the UK uh, in any given year. So just to keep this in context, the UK is putting in peril its reputation for respecting international law and overturning uh, a lot of the conventions of uh, the relationship between Parliament and the judiciary for that very small uh, result, which could at the very best from the government's point of view, perhaps uh, lead to a hundred or two Ponsolby being returned to Rwanda before the next election. The context, I think, is important. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I guess they, they would say that those hundred or two would then deter lots of others from, from making the journey. But there's complete absence of proof of that fact, which is why Matthew Wyckoff had to ask for a direction to spend the money on the scheme in the first place. But I think you're absolutely right, Peter. I mean, I think that 30% drop, which the, the government has achieved over the year through whatever means, and you know, these things are always affected by other factors as well, um, seems to have been drowned out by all the voices in the Conservative Party talking about how this new policy won't work. And that seems to be quite counterproductive in an election year to be emphasising that rather than uh, what has been achieved. In the end, the only way to reduce the numbers is good cooperation with the French and other European neighbours, which is happening and is having an effect. Uh, and the uh, the idea that returning one or two plane loads to Rwanda would have a massive deterrent effect on arrivals in the UK is, shall we say, untested. Indeed. Jill, do you think, following on from all the discussions around the bill, that membership of the ECHR is going to be a major issue at the next election? I think there are clearly some people in the Conservative Party who would like it to be. Whether the Prime Minister goes that far is quite interesting because you know, clearly that was one of the really big divisions. Alice referred to some of the amendments going down uh, from both wings of the Conservative Party. Some of them were from people who definitely wanted the UK to stick inside that. We heard a speech from former Attorney General Jeremy Wright on that. Would the Prime Minister commit to that? Or will it be a battleground in the Tory leadership election to come if the Prime Minister and the government lose the next election? I think an awful lot of what we've been seeing acting out in Parliament over the last few weeks is, if you like, the post-election battle for the soul of the Conservative Party. So I'm not sure. Maybe they think it has the resonance of Brexit. But get leaving the European Convention of Human Rights done doesn't really sound <laughs> like something I'm going to put on a mug uh, next autumn. And. Peter, I saw that Times columnist Matthew Paris um, has argued that the 1951 Geneva Convention is sort of outdated now, that one of the treaties, obviously, that is quite central to this whole question of, of asylum and so on. Do you agree with him? No. I mean, of course, the world has moved on a lot since 1951, but the reality of refugees fleeing terrible circumstances at home is still there. And referring to the 1951 convention reminds us that although the government want to call these people illegal migrants, they are asylum seekers until they are assessed by a a tribunal and a court. Uh, At the moment, they have the right under the 51 convention to seek asylum, and then it's a question of testing their case. Um, Yes, there are growing movements of people around the world. Um, That is putting 
countries, uh, all the the wealthy uh, affluent countries under pressure, of course, but I think to lose the principle that uh, people who are fleeing immediate danger at home have the right at least to have their case tested uh, in more stable countries is one that we should hang on to. Alice, Peter was saying the Lords are going to pay close attention to the bill. Now, what's your sort of prediction for how long it's going to take to get through the upper house and when it's going to be on the statute book. And <laughs> are we going to see any flights taking off before the election? How long is a piece of string? Like think... crystal ball? <laughs> My crystal ball is very murky, Hannah, I'm afraid. I mean, I think, as, as Peter said, you know, the Lords takes its role as revising chamber very seriously. It does detailed scrutiny of legislation and actually does it quite well. Also, the government can't control the timetable for legislation in the House of Lords in the way that they can in the Commons. In theory, if members of the upper house wanted to debate and vote on every single amendment table to that piece of legislation, they could do so. Uh, So the government loses a bit of control over timing there. The other thing as well is that, again, as, as Peter touched on, the Lords generally tends to take a particular interest in legislation that has some kind of constitutional significance or constitutional implications, which this clearly does. Uh, And they also know that in this particular instance, they are not either bound by the Parliament Act, because the government has already run out of time to to use that to force it through quickly, uh, or to force it through at all. They're also not bound by the Salisbury Convention, so this idea that you, you shouldn't vote down a manifesto commitment, because this was not a manifesto commitment. All of that said, at the same time, the Lords generally also takes the fact that the sort of Commons has primacy quite seriously. And so I think you would expect that this bill will eventually make it through the upper house. But I think absolutely, as Peter says, the chances are that it will go through with amendment. And then actually the interesting thing becomes the attention shifts back to the commons and we potentially see the government having to worry again about votes on amendments that the Lords have have put in. But potentially we could be talking a good few months yet. I would think there is a case to be argued that the worst of all worlds for Rishi Sunak is that this bill passes, some flights take off and small boats still come. Because as you've said, at the moment, he's working on that this is absolutely critical to his strategy to deter asylum seekers. At the moment, it's in the not proven camp. But it could be that the worst thing is actually that he can't blame the House of Lords for frustrating it. He can't blame the courts. He just has a demonstrably ineffective, frankly, rubbish policy. And I think that possibly is the weakest grounds on which to fight this election, because then he really has nowhere else to go. And he can't really point to to anything else, because he's made it sound as though this is the magic bullet that will solve this problem. And everybody is frustrated getting away. And he as Prime Minister is is seeing them off one by one in a sort of game of Prime Ministerial whack-a-mole. I think really quite damning if he ends up with a policy that after all he didn't invent in the first place and we know that you know as chancellor he was quite or at least briefed to be quite skeptical about if this policy goes through a couple of flights do actually take off and then the boats still keep piling over the channel absolutely and i think alice describes exactly right what will happen in the lords um, there will be a lot of amendments uh, a lot of our jurists our judges our barristers people who take this very seriously will table amendments they'll be debated over six or seven days and nights i would guess in committee stage. Then it will come back for votes in the report stage, as it's called. I mean, just one uh, straw in the wind, the International Agreements Committee in the Lords has just published a scrutiny of the Rwanda Treaty, the UK-Rwanda 
treaty, and it has said that it should not enter into force until all the various safeguards that Rwanda are promising to put in place there are in place. So, you know, there's one play for, for the long grass. Uh, but as, as Alice says, it will eventually make its way through the Lords. I mean, I guess the question is, does it do that before the summer break or not? I suppose it probably will. But then, even after it's uh, on the statute book, there are potentially legal rounds to be heard before a flight takes off. So it is still going to be quite tight. I think, to get a flight or two off before the election. And then, as Jill says, they may have absolutely no effect, at least in the short term, on the arrivals. And that leaves the government you know, without a policy, really, to stop the boats. And I think as well, and this comes back a bit to, to Jill's point, there is this sort of sense now that, well, the kind of, it's got through the Commons, it's cleared that hurdle, the big kind of set piece vote at third reading has happened. So I think for a lot of people sort of watching the news, you'll go, right, well, okay, at some point this bill is going to become law, that's kind of dealt with. What about all of these other issues that we might be caring about? And so it's not just the question of, does this get through and then does it or does it not work? It's also the question of, people have an awful lot of other concerns around things like public services and so on. And actually, their attention may now shift back to that, which isn't necessarily great for the Prime Minister either. Yeah, I mean, public services, I think it's pretty clear, is going to be high on lots of people's agenda in the run into the next election. Let's turn our attention to a major moment in Rishi Sunak's premiership, and that's the first time he has authorised military action. Late last Thursday, British and US forces, backed by a wider group of allies, launched airstrikes against Iranian-backed Houthi rebels after the group ignored a joint warning from 10 countries to stop attacking shipping passing through the Red Sea. Peter, this is a big moment for Rishi Sunak, for any prime minister, the first time they deploy UK troops overseas. Yes, absolutely. Although this this is, you know, no troops on the ground in, in Yemen. Indeed, you know, it's, it's uh, aircraft and, and missiles. However, yes, it's a use of armed force. All uses of armed force are risky by definition. You don't know how it's going to end up. And in the kind of cauldron of the Middle East at the moment, with tensions running so high, it is particularly risky. I mean, my view is that he really didn't have any option. Uh, at least Western countries didn't have any option but to uh, respond, given that the Houthis had attacked, I think, 27 ships, despite warnings. I suppose Rishi Sunak had the option of not taking part, as the French did, quite interestingly. And he decided, as most British prime ministers do, that he would be with the Americans. We had the capacity to deliver some uh, some bombs by aircraft from, from Cyprus, uh, and we did so. And I think that that was intended as a show of force, Nobody imagined, I think, it would be enough to stop every last Houthi missile, and indeed we've had some fired since. But I think the aim is to at least degrade their capacity to find these tankers, to the radars and the intelligence and so on, and then to launch particularly ballistic missiles, which is an incredibly risky thing to do against a ship. So, yes, he's sided clearly with the Americans while hoping that this will be a relatively limited, self-contained action. Um, I think it's right that, as seen from London and Washington, this is not an intervention in the Israel-Gaza war, but it's also true that the regional tensions are so high because of the continuing Israeli assault on Gaza, the continuing rise in the number of civilian casualties and all that, and therefore... Although not directly linked, it is another reminder of why it's so urgent to get that fighting wound down, pauses leading to a ceasefire, leading to a post-conflict. The longer it goes on, the more the risk of it inflaming other tensions, as we're also seeing with Iran now lashing out against Pakistan and Pakistan retaliating. There is a lot of tension in the region into which Rishi Sunak and the British armed forces have now entered. Yeah, I mean, Sunak's been very 
keen to emphasise, hasn't he, that the action is not linked to the conflict in in Gaza. Do you think that the the UK's involvement in this is is a one off? I mean, he again, he was keen to say this was sort of self defence and this was an emergency situation, which was why, and we'll come to this, you know, the, the, there was no parliamentary vote ahead of ahead of time. Um, do you think that's right, or do you think we're going to be drawn in further? I mean, if you look at the Saudi experience, dealing with the Houthis is uh, not a one-off experience, is it? You're quite right. I mean, the Saudis fought a war for several years, uh, including some pretty indiscriminate bombing and, and didn't dislodge the Houthis. Well, I don't think you can ever say that this is a one-off. No, uh, I think there is a prospect that this there will be continuing strikes. The Americans have already conducted some. I think the government would want to say that this is not a war against the Houthis. The objective is not to defeat them. The objective is to stop them firing missiles at international shipping, putting up the costs for goods right across uh, you know, the, the Western world uh, and the cost of energy as well. But I guess that the RAF have to be ready for further strikes, uh, but they will want it to remain relatively limited. And I think to measure it, not so much in stopping every single attack by the Houthis, but getting things on a downward trend, reducing the danger. All of that, I think, means that it's going to be some time before uh, the shipping lines will be willing to even contemplate sailing through the Red Sea again. So I think the inflationary effect of the diversions going on will last quite a while beyond the point where these uh, attacks begin to wind down if they do. So, Peter, what's the view in the rest of the Arab world? Because it's fine for us to say nothing to do with Israel, Gaza, we're doing this and frame it that way and for the Americans to frame it that way. But that may not necessarily be how it's seen through the Arab world. And if you were looking at a sort of pincered military strikes, but diplomatic approach to try, is there anyone who can bring any pressure on the Houthis other than Iran to sort of say, stop doing this? This is actually something that's damaging our trade. We don't want you to do it anymore. Is there a sort of separate diplomatic leg or is this basically our only option is to engage in these surgical strikes, as you say, to degrade capacity? I think it's a very interesting point. Um, And the moderate Arabs, the Gulf Arabs and so on, I suspect will be very pleased to see Western countries now taking on some of the Houthi capacities, which they tried to do over the last few years. But they've been notably unwilling to put their head above the parapet and support uh, publicly. And I think for the Saudis, who are the key players here, they are probably thinking, we have got a bit of a detente going on with Iran, at least we did have, and that may be the channel to do what you say, Jill. I mean, if anybody can talk to the Iranians about reducing it, it's the Saudis, because there is a potential Saudi-Iranian joint interest there, which the Chinese have been trying to broker in reducing tensions, helping the Iranians out of their isolation. So I think the Saudis are probably staying out publicly because they want to keep a line open to Tehran, which seems to me to make sense, actually. Alice, just to go back to what Peter was saying earlier about the sort of potential for escalation and a wider regional conflict and also the impact on the world economy, but also in our case, the you know the UK economy, the inflationary effect of the disruption of shipping and so on. Parliament didn't get a say on this action, and maybe you you know that that's when you look at this action in isolation, you can you can justify that and looking at the precedents. But given the the wider context of this action and what it might lead to, what do you think about the fact that there was no opportunity for a vote in Parliament before uh, intervention took place? It's a really interesting question because, as you say sort of the government's argument is, you know, this was limited, it was one-off, there's no boots on the ground or anything like that. 
arguably as well the timing perhaps was to some degree out of the government's control because they were working with with international allies and therefore there was no vote and that's entirely legitimate and proper they can absolutely do that but as you say there is a real question about whether that actually holds and whether we do end up with kind of further intervention. We did see the government try to do some things to involve Parliament. So we saw that they briefed uh, Keir Starmer ahead of the strikes. They briefed the Speaker of the House of Commons. We also, after the strikes, saw a statement from the Prime Minister that at least gave MPs some chance to ask questions and have a bit of a debate. But I think if this does continue and if there is a likelihood of further strikes particularly as well, given that context of of potential escalation, as we've outlined, I think the demands from the Commons that they be given more time to properly debate this and pass some kind of sort of substantive motion, even if it's not necessarily authorising strikes, but it is at least setting out some kind of parliamentary support or at least sort of taking note that this has happened. I think those demands probably will grow. And frankly, it would be in the government's best interests if those demands grow to actually let members have the chance to debate it and pass it because you know that is something that that shores up the government's position on this. I agree and of course David Cameron has form in this area because in 2013 when it was a question of strikes against uh, Syrian chemical weapons stocks David Cameron did recall parliament did put it to vote and lost the vote and that did quite a lot of damage to American views of how reliable an ally we are that Even for an urgent one-off military strike, we felt it necessary to consult Parliament and we couldn't carry, the government couldn't carry Parliament with it. Um, And so Theresa May later corrected that by by undertaking another strike without prior consultation. I think, as Alice said, uh, the view in government probably was that this was um, urgent, uh, it was uh, limited, it did not involve deploying British troops and therefore they should go ahead and then give Parliament the chance to have a debate afterwards. If there was any question of a longer-term commitment, especially people on the ground, then I think a parliamentary vote would be essential and any sensible government would make sure they held it. And the longer this goes on, the more there will be pressure indeed for parliament to take a position in a more formal way on it. Joel, in an election year, is it good for Sunak to be on the global stage or is it a distraction or is the fact that he has David Cameron, as Peter's just mentioned, as his foreign secretary now, mean that he can get the international lens, as it were, on his premiership without having to put the legwork in himself? I think it's quite interesting. I think, as we've said before on the podcast, having David Cameron there actually does enable the Prime Minister, if you like, to sort of send a sort of an acceptable substitute to some of the sort of international gatherings because David Cameron has quite a lot of heft in international affairs. David Cameron is lodging it at Davos this week. We've seen sort of quite a big Labour presence at Davos. The Prime Minister decided not to go, however much he might have liked the idea of, you know, mooching around with a bunch of tech bros in on the ski slope. So, uh, so I think it does enable the UK to cover off, if you like, that foreign affairs flank. I mean, the real danger for any prime minister is that when domestic affairs look a bit unrelenting, offering quite low dividends, is that you find going abroad increasingly attractive and you can go and sympathise with lots of other fellow leaders who are facing many of the same pressures. I mean, facing sort of grim challenges within their parties, difficulties with sort of rise of right-wing populism, complaints about migration. So it's quite nice to go and talk to the probably the only other people who sympathise with you. But I think Rishi Sunak's made it quite clear that he's not 
desperately keen on being a you know away a lot and a really big international player. And I think by appointing David Cameron, he does actually allow himself to step back a bit if he wants to doing that. But very interesting to get from Peter. I mean, how was the House of Lords reacting? How's the Foreign Office? You imagine the Foreign Office must be absolutely delighted to have David Cameron after some of the foreign secretaries they've had recently. Uh, you might say that. I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> <laughs> However, um, yes, I think Rishi Sunak, I would never have expected him to do this, to bring David Cameron back. I declare an interest. I worked for him as his National Security Advisor in 2010. But by doing so, he's brought back a real heavyweight. Uh, it's not a bad preparation for being foreign secretary to have been prime minister. You know, he has a tremendous uh, list of contacts around the world. Many of the autocrats haven't changed since he was prime minister, even if the Democrats probably have. Autocrats don't tend to, do they? <laughs> no, they tend to be there for a while. And I think it does allow Rishi Sunak, as Jill says, to step back. He's got a, a, you know, a well-known figure out there, safe pair of hands. Uh, David Cameron is no threat to him in the sense that you know, he's not an MP. Uh, and I think also, Nadine Doris said he was, actually, because well, this is all a plot to reinstall David Cameron after the election. <laughs> I, I think the last thing David Cameron wants is to find himself leader of the opposition after the election. You know, he, he can work seven days a week on foreign policy. He doesn't have to go to his constituency. He can work to the very last day up before the election while Rishi Sunak does the domestic politics and the campaigning. So from that point of view, I think it's quite a smart move. And David Cameron is very effective. And just one further reflection on what we've been saying. It's very striking how many simultaneous crises we've got going on at the moment internationally. We haven't mentioned the, the war in Ukraine, which is on our doorstep and continue, will continue this winter. We've got the Middle East in flames with Israel-Gaza. We've now opened a new flank against the Houthis. I mean, if there is one thread between them, I suppose it's a sense that uh, the Americans have stepped back and the international order we used to know has been unravelling, and there is something in that. But if the perception of the autocrats was that the Americans had stepped back and that enabled them to be more bold and reckless. Actually, the result has been to bring the Americans back in to leadership of international crisis management. In Ukraine, they've been taking the leading role. In Israel, Gaza, they've been really the only country apart from Qatar trying to do any serious negotiating brokering. So actually, this has brought the Americans back for the moment. But how long will that last? Well, we'll come on to that in the third section. We're going to have a chat about the US. But absolutely, I mean, I was going to ask you, Peter, as you say, we've got the situation in Ukraine, which doesn't seem to be easing. We've also just had the Taiwanese election, which could potentially increase tensions with China. Lots of different sort of points of tension or indeed already conflagration around the world. How relevant do you think the integrated review looks now? The government already had to refresh their inter integrated review once to take account of the war in Ukraine. And I think rightly they brought the focus back to European security as the centre of gravity of Britain's own national security. So I don't think that needs redoing. There's no point in having a, a strategic document if you review it every year or two, because it doesn't give the machine any time to digest it and, and adjust to it. So I think that the framework is right. I think, as I was saying, the world is more dangerous and unpredictable, partly because of a perception that the Americans have less authority, less appetite to lead than was the case 50 years ago. If you think Kissinger, more or less alone, brokered the settlement of the 1973 Yom Kippur War, now the Americans are struggling even to have useful leverage over Mr. Netanyahu, uh, let alone over Hamas. So I think, I think that that is the case. As you say, the Taiwanese elections have confirmed the more pro-independence party in the presidency again. 
But I think if I was Xi Jinping and I watched the real problems that Putin's army is having in Ukraine, where all you have to do is drive across the border, he's going to think twice or three times before launching a kind of an amphibious assault up the beaches of Taiwan. So I think probably Ukraine has made it less likely we're going to see classic all-out war against Taiwan, but the risk of a, a real Chinese effort between now and 2027-2028 to reduce, to wear down Taiwan in the hope of making it more of a, of a kind of vassal state of China, I think that will go on. But I, I think the Ukraine effect probably reduces the risk of an outright war. That's really interesting. I mean, I guess the other reflection I've had sort of in recent months is just about, you know, the fact that for these autocrats, they are do tend to have security of tenure unless there's a coup or something like that. They have the luxury of time, which democratic leaders don't always have. And and I rather suspect that Putin is taking his time in, in Ukraine and, and hoping, looking across the Atlantic for a, a different president in less than a year's time, which will really change the calculation there. I agree. I mean, the thing that autocrats and authoritarians can do is lay out long-term plans. They're great at five-year plans and, and big you know, strategic plans for their country. And the problem is that those plans can be rubbish because they are not tested and contested in kind of democratic debate. And so Putin you know, made a major error. However, it turns out in Ukraine, he's already strengthened NATO. He's weaned the EU off dependence on Russian energy and so on. Those are strategic change in the European balance. But yes, I think the Ukrainians have got some quite difficult decisions to make this year. Are they going to try and settle? if they can, for some sort of a partition this summer before a possible arrival of Donald Trump. Partitions and so on, of course, it's not a brilliant outcome for Europe. But if you think of the partition of Korea 70 years ago, the, what happened in South Korea and what happened in North Korea, you know, the prospect is that if we could get 80% of Ukraine unoccupied with some sort of cessation of hostilities, leaving a line of control, Russians in occupation of 20%, the 20% in occupation by Russia is going to look pretty benighted and sad if we get a burst of you know, growth and prosperity in the unoccupied part of Ukraine, as happened in South Korea, as happened in West Germany, leaving East Germany you know, in a very much worse place. So I myself, I'm not so worried about the prospect of a partition. I'm worried that Putin won't see an interest in it and that therefore things will roll forward uh, to the uncertainties of the US election. Well, let's cheer ourselves up by turning to the US election and looking at unfolding political events in the US. Alice, we saw the Iowa caucus this week. Tell us what it is. What does uh, Donald Trump's massive win tell us about what's going to happen next? So the Iowa caucus is the first primary that happens as part of the US election cycle. So this is where political parties in each state start to decide the process of who their nominee for president will be. And Iowa goes first. It guards its position of going first very jealously. But this week, actually, interestingly, we only saw the primary for the Republican Party. So the Democrats have started theirs, but this year they're doing it by mail-in ballots. So we won't know the results for some time. I also don't think the results are particularly in doubt, such as they are for the Republicans. And Donald Trump won with 51% of the vote. So the person who came second to him, Ron DeSantis, he got fewer than half as many votes as, as Donald Trump got. So, I mean, it was a resounding victory. The news networks in the States basically called it for Trump kind of immediately. So, you know, it obviously gives him big momentum going through uh, the rest of the campaign. We have already seen some people in his party who have 
shall we say, complicated historic relationships with Donald Trump, people like Ted Cruz, who've already rode in behind him in the wake of these victories. So it's possible that this means that the Republican primaries really end up being effectively over quite soon. The one thing that it's perhaps worth saying is that Iowa actually has a fairly notoriously poor record for selecting successful candidates. So it's something like in the kind of modern era, it's only selected the actual person who went on to be the Republican nominee about 40-ish percent of the time. But I think the nature of this victory was so big that at this point, Donald Trump is essentially the presumptive Republican nominee. And looking forward as the primaries progress, how quickly do you think Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley, the candidate who came third, are likely to drop out? It's all down to money, isn't it? And when their donors start to fall away. It's down to when their donors start to fall away. It's also down to them starting to think about what their role could be in a Republican party with Donald Trump as the nominee. So there is a debate about do any of these other candidates think that they might be able to be his running mate? That might affect their kind of calculations. But I mean, we have the next primary. So that's in New Hampshire on Tuesday. And then you get uh, what's called Super Tuesday in early March. So I think that's when about 14 states will choose. So I mean, really after that, I think it's likely to be kind of game over for, for anybody else. Peter, do you think the UK is ready for a possible second Trump I think people are becoming aware that it's a real risk, yes. But how do you plan for the arrival in power of someone as unpredictable as Donald Trump? I suppose the difference this time is that Trump won was pretty incompetent in governing and chaotic. And the sort of deep state in Washington was able to avoid some of the worst effects. Trump, too, will be much better prepared. And I would bet that our embassy in Washington are already getting alongside the people who are in the Trump constellation as possible appointees in the new administration to try and track what their policies may be. So, yes, I'm sure that the British government are mapping as far as one can what happens. I hope also they're thinking that if Trump does come in, this is going to be another reason for drawing closer to European countries, because in most issues with the Trump administration, we'll find that we have a shared interest with the EU and with European uh, countries generally. And even with the current government's inhibitions about getting too close to the EU, there ought to be plans, I think, for much closer cooperation in the event of a Trump presidency. I just wanted to ask Peter about Trump being better prepared. We know that Trump is very keen on politicising an awful lot of the officials in the US government uh, through executive order. So isn't it just likely that Trump too might be even more chaotic than Trump won. Maybe that would be the aim, but it'd be sort of even more planned chaos than we saw first time round. I mean, that's one possible outcome, and it doesn't cheer me up very much at all. Um, (laughs) uh, Planned chaos is probably quite a good way of putting it. I mean, we hear that there is already a sort of shadow transition team in place. He's got people, some of whom will have been thinking about this for four years, uh, in place to start thinking. We hear of lists of hundreds, thousands of people who they are planning to fire in the first few days. Many of them, they're then intending to try and prosecute, including the Biden family. So I think they will come in with some plans for the destructive phase of of Trump too. Whether there is a constructive creative phase behind it, I don't know. 
But I think having had the experience, Trump himself will remain chaotic and unpredictable, of course. But there may be, the risk is, will be people around him who have spent four years thinking very carefully about how they're going to use Trump to really have a revolution in the American way of governing and change it permanently. Because Trump can't have a third term unless he changes the US Constitution, which you know Putin and Xi Jinping don't seem to have any problem doing. Uh, and so this is his chance to make a permanent change in the way America runs. And I think the risk is that they will be better prepared than last time. America has a bit of a history of political dynasties, doesn't it? So that's, that's the way his thinking will be going. Jill, there's a bit of a prospect that the presidential election in the US could take place at around the same time as a general election here in the UK. Do you think that would matter? Well, there's sort of two axes on which I think people are beginning to think through what would be the implications. One of which is sort of attention, sort of bandwidth for spotting disinformation or indeed interference in elections. And I think a bit of a sense that actually the bigger prize will be interfering in the US election, though maybe it's so much of a foregone conclusion by then that people decide that's not necessary. The other one, which I think is very unpredictable, is what would be the implications of, frankly, US elections are about the only other elections that the British media like covering. So to what extent would this play well for either Sunak or Starmer? Starmer being able to contrast himself with Trump. Where would Sunak position himself vis-a-vis Trump? If you ask British electors, would they vote for Trump? It is actually a very small proportion of the British electorate. I think Biden would have won almost every constituency. It's certainly true. Obama would win every almost every constituency. Biden would win almost every constituency over Trump. But insofar as there is any residual sympathy in the UK for Trump, it is in some of the Conservative Party, maybe some of Reform would be the biggest place for sympathisers. And so I think if Trump was saying outrageous things, will those be played back to the UK general election? What would you do about this and things like that? And I think, can you deal with Trump? Who is better placed to deal with Trump might become quite a big election theme. Generally, we don't fight general elections on foreign policy. But if it looks as though Trump has committed to leaving NATO or cutting off Ukraine, you can imagine that that issue will then come and play back if there is a simultaneous UK campaign. So I think it's quite unpredictable how that bit will play out. I think that's right. Uh, I think usually prime ministers want to choose dates for elections where they can measure the risks and to some extent manage the risks. If you picked a date a week or two after the US election, you wouldn't be able to manage at all the risk of what then President-elect Trump would say if he declared on day one that he would be pulling the US out of NATO, how does Prime Minister Sunak react to that? I mean, he'd have to distance himself from it. But how would that look to some of his core voters if the British Prime Minister was immediately distancing himself from Trump and that might then lead to Trump reposting against him? It's risky. And I guess that has to be a factor. It, it's an additional factor of risk. If you could hold it a week or two before the elections, you at least wouldn't have quite that same level of risk. And I suppose that the election strategists are thinking about that. And I think as well, one of the other things in addition to all of that is that there is the potential for a very real period of instability in the US. I mean, we saw in 2020, there was not a peaceful transfer of power. And there obviously have to be concerns, again, depending on the result of this election, that there could be further kind of problems like that. So that's a real risk. There's also, frankly, a risk that that period of instability actually predates the election to some extent. You know, one of the things we've not touched on is the fact that 
even though Donald Trump is, is effectively the presumptive nominee at this point, he is facing a large number of legal challenges, including some legal challenges that are actually about his ability to even be on the ballot. And that's a challenge which is almost going to certainly end up before the US Supreme Court. So depending on how all of those things play out during the course of the campaign, the prospect of there being that kind of real instability in the US even before you get to the election is relatively high. And then, as Peter says, in in the weeks after it as well. Sorry, that's a depressing note to end on. Thanks very much, Alice. (laughs) That is the end of this week's podcast. Thank you to Joe Rutter, Alice Lilly, and especially to Peter Ricketts. Great that you could join us. Thank you all for listening to this episode. You can find all our podcasts or The Expert Factor, our new podcast with the IFS and UK in a Changing Europe, at Acast, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. So tell your friends, do subscribe, and leave us a good review. We crept up to number two in the government podcast charts last week, and we quite like to be at number one. So do consider giving us a review remember to head to our website for all our work we've got a fantastic new report out on the treasury and for exciting news about our government 2024 conference next week which is featuring john glenn wes streeting quasi Quateng, nick thomas simmons anita boating claire ainsley stephen bush georgia gould sam friedman and many more so do sign up now until then have a great weekend which might mean not turning to the world affairs pages in your newspaper it's all looking pretty tense see you next week everyone